We spoke there with the kids about seasons, times and seasons, and each one of us has times and seasons in our lives. We have seasons of joy, seasons of sorrow. We have times when we feel defeated, just regularly feel defeated. And then we have times when we overcome, and we're conscious of that overcoming. The incarnate God, Jesus Christ, passed the same. He passed the same path. The ministry of Jesus, his proclamation, his death, his resurrection. They set a pattern for us as we work our own way through life, as we work along the path that we have to walk. And we could not do better than to walk the way that the perfect man walked. We could not do better than that. He lived how a perfect person ought to live. He didn't just model it, he lived it. And so the, the church ought to try to emulate him, ought to reflect him. And so the seasons and the rhythms of the church that we, we experience together, the path that we walk together, continually remind us of his way. That's why we have seasons. They're meant to cue us in to the perfect path. And so as we're traveling through these seasons, they encourage us that however high or however low we find ourselves today, or at any point in the year, however low or however high you find yourself, at any given point, we can realize as we're remembering the journey of the perfect one, we can realize, ah, he passed this way. He passed this way. The thing that I'm in, he passed this way. I, I can see. He knows this way. Well, we have now entered the Lenten season, and through this season, we're going to be looking closely at moments in his life, moments in his ministry, where we can see the shadow of the cross falling across his path. Now, these are important moments because they, they remind us that the way of Jesus, the, the way, the way that we are given to walk, the same way, is the way of the cross. If we look at the perfect path and we see the shadow of the cross there, we're reminded oh, that that's our way. The cross is our way. So from first to last, in excitement and rejoicing, in sorrow and in loss, his way and our way is sacrificial love. It's marked with sacrificial love, self-giving love that frees our hearts from the world's bonds. And while, while also set, enabling us to set others free, that's his way, the way of the cross, and it's our way. This morning, we begin this exploration, as I said, through the Lenten season. That's what we're going to look at. We begin by looking at the earliest moment of Jesus' public life, his public ministry, recorded in John chapter 1, verses 29 to 34. We're going to look a little around that, too. So if you have your Bible, please look, John 1. 
And if you look at verses 29 to 34, many of you have red-letter Bibles. There's no red in this section. Jesus doesn't speak in these verses. They are about him, but he says nothing. And that's because these words are words of testimony. They are what the famous prophet John the Baptist said about Jesus on the day that he came back to the Jordan River where John was baptizing after Jesus had been 40 days out in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, overcoming the temptations of Satan. Uh, verses 32 to 33, we see, we understand that Jesus had earlier, he had come, he'd been there for baptism. And on that occasion, the Father had revealed from heaven that this is the Son. And he had anointed him with a visible touch of the Holy Spirit, anointed him for his mission as the redeeming king. And then the Spirit had led him out to overcome the devil. Uh, from verses 19 to 28, we look a little back. We can see that everyone was listening to John the Baptist. Something big was happening. Thousands and thousands were going out to him. And even the religious and political leaders had taken notice and they sent to question him. With thousands of people on the move going to see John here, John, they wanted to know who he claimed to be what he claimed to be about, what he was teaching. Was he going to lead a revolt? Is that what this is about? And on what was he basing his authority to preach and to act? Because John was acting outside of the structures of Jewish society and religious worship. He was in the wilderness. He wasn't in a temple. He's outside of the structures. What is this about? Now, as we can see from his testimony, again, glancing up 19 to 28, he had absolutely no interest in himself. He is a most remarkable person. Jesus said, amongst those born of women, there is no one like John the Baptist. He had no interest in himself. He was given entirely, 100%, to preparing the people for the coming of the Christ, the mighty one, God's mighty one. He was making straight the way of the Lord. He was announcing his coming, and he provided a means for God's people to open their hearts to the coming one. There's not a hint that John is interested in himself anywhere in there. And so, like the people, we should listen to people like that. Like the people who were gathered there around him, we ought to listen carefully to what he's saying. So, let's... This is an imaginative experience. Let's try to put ourselves there, like the fishermen and the cottagers that came out to see John the Baptist. So there we are. We're standing near him. Now, a while ago, we had heard, uh, before we went out, we had heard after 400 years with no prophet, no message from God, there was a guy who was dressed in camel's hair, eating locusts, so he looks the part like Elijah and Elisha. He's doing what they did, and he's doing it where they did it, out in the wilderness. This is a prophet, after all the time. And so 
We also heard that his words were powerful, and so we were excited. We, we got up, and we went. We wanted to hear, what is God doing? What's the message from the Lord? And so we were baptized. The message was, repent. Prepare for the coming king. And there was a way that we could do that. We could be baptized confessing our part of a sinful nation. Each one of us, that's what we did. And so we followed John's teaching that if we wanted to be ready for God's movement, we have to admit our need for him. And we've been hanging on his words. We've been listening to everything John says because he's telling us that the one would be sent from God, he would soon be coming, and through him, all would see the salvation of the Lord. These, these are recorded words of John. And then, we're standing about him one day, and he suddenly points... There's a guy, just a normal guy, walking up the river. And he says, behold, look, that's God's sacrificial victim. Look, the sacrificial victim of the Lord is here. That's what a lamb means. That's all it means. So when... We're listening like these fishermen. And when we hear the Lamb of God, it echoes two moments, two primary moments for us. There are many more in the Scripture, but two primary. The first is Genesis 22. This is Abraham and Isaac. You may remember this story. Isaac led his son up Mount Moriah. That would later be called Mount Zion. He goes up the mountain to make a sacrifice. Sacrifices like this were acknowledgments of sin on the part of the household. In this particular case, Abraham had been directed to make the sacrifice. You must acknowledge your sin. You must acknowledge the guilt of your household. And so God had told Abraham to offer his son, his only son. And yet, God had also told him through that one, I will bless the nations. Through that one, I will multiply you as many as the stars in the sky, as many as the sand on the seashore. Through that one. So when Isaac asks, where's the lamb? Abraham replies, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, my son. The author of Hebrews explains Abraham's reasoning. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. That's all he could figure. But as you know, God did provide the sacrifice on the mountain. As Abraham moves to sacrifice his son, the Lord speaks and says, no, I've provided it. I've substituted. There. And there's a ram with its horns caught in the brambles. A ram, a substitute for the sin of Abraham and the sin of Abraham's family, God provided the sacrificial victim, the Lamb of God. So also echoing, there we are, fishermen, also echoing, we hear, behold, the Lamb of God. We hear the exodus, the phrase Lamb of God. It was inseparable from the Passover Lamb. Israel, 
became God's special people when he delivered them out of captivity in Egypt. And he ransomed them. And it was a ransom that cost the life of the eldest son of every family. Again, the eldest son representing the family and the sin and rebellion of every family. And so as God came to judge Egypt for its rebellion, he did the same as he did with Abraham. God provided a substitute. Any household... You notice if you read Exodus, including Egyptian households, there's no, he makes the offer wide. Any household who would bring a lamb and join, join that lamb in the household would stay with the house for a few days. It would become part of the household, but it had to be a perfect spotless lamb. It would become part of the household and then it would be slain as the sacrificial victim. For the family. This was the Lamb of God. So when the judgment of God fell on Egypt, those who claimed the Lamb of God were spared. And then they were freed from Egypt because Pharaoh relented, because Pharaoh admitted the judgment of God and released them. And so now John cries out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. These moments fill our thoughts. Look, here is the sacrificial victim. Like the one God gave to Abraham. Like the one he gave to Israel in Egypt. This man will die for the sin of the world. John here, he, he speaks in the prophetic spirit and the power of Elijah. And the prophet John the Baptist, he was linking by the power of God and the understanding God gave him, he was linking the stories of God's ransoming, of his deliverance, linking them with the prophecies of Isaiah in chapter 53. We, we know these prophecies, they... We sing them around Christmas, especially. The suffering servant, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So to actually heal God's people, to actually restore them and deliver them from sin, from the condition of the heart, not just from captivity, but from the condition of the captive heart, it would take more than an animal. The Lamb of God would have to be a perfect, spotless man. And earth could not provide such a man. 
we could not offer. There was, among us, there was none. It had to be a lamb of and from God. So did anyone in the crowd understand John that day? I don't think so. It does not appear so. But Jesus did. It was the Spirit. It was His own Spirit speaking in John that gestures towards Him. Filled with the Spirit of the Lord was Jesus. Anointed for His task was Jesus. And so He knew His mission had to pass through the cross. He knew His mission had to pass through substitution as a sacrificial victim. That's why He came. He came to be the Lamb of God. So what did the crowd understand? It's also important. I think they understood more than we often do, despite being on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So hear what else John said. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain... This is he. This is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, I have seen, I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. When we hear this, when we read this, we typically understand it as a statement of fact. And it is. It's a a statement of identity. We have here an ancient testimony to the identity of Jesus. And we either accept it as true or we we reject it. That we do that with statements of fact. This is true or it's not true. Or we we potentially, if we're in in working this out, we might put it in a category of evidence that we will measure against other evidence. That is not how the people standing there with John heard this. Yes, they, they absolutely heard this as a statement of testimony about Jesus' identity. They, yes. Because the one who had been speaking, the one who had been uh, acting with authority, the one who had a commission from God and was baptizing, was now saying that the whole reason that his ministry existed had arrived. It, he, he gives testimony. He says, this is the guy. This is the reason I came. But there's more. Because the people standing there had gone out to meet John, they were not comfortably at home in their home communities like we are. They had gone out. They, had, they also heard, when, when John said these words, they heard an invitation. They heard a call. He's saying, in effect, if you have believed me, and you have acted on the basis of that faith and that belief, you've acted on the basis of a hope, you are now to shift, you are now to believe him and act accordingly. It's the action we miss. He says, I baptized you with water. I used a material sign. And this sign signified your desire that you would be soul-washed. That's why you came. You had a desire. 
And this act was, it was a way to express your desire to turn from sin. To live a, a good life. To live righteously. You left your homes. You left your homes. You got up. He's in the wilderness. You got up. You walked for miles. You went without food. Maybe for days you went without food. And you came to hear and to be washed. Now, this guy is going to give you the thing itself. You came expressing a desire. This guy is giving you the thing you wanted. I give you a sign. He's going to give you what you said you wanted. And so if you came to be baptized in the river, you were saying you wanted this man's work. The baptism with the Holy Spirit. And there's the invitation. You can now follow him. You out in the desert, you in the wilderness, you who came to hear me, you can now follow him. As much as you sought to be baptized, he's now offering something better. Listen to whatever he says and do whatever he commands. So John's, John's saying, whatever authority that, that I have, he has more. This is the one that I said, the one who comes after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. If you trusted me, trust him. So when we, when we read this passage, we rarely hear John's encouragement to follow. As I said, we typically read this just, it's a statement of fact. It's a statement of identity. Not as a, an invitation to follow. Because we're not standing with them in the desert. The idea of, of following it, it just, just rushes past us here. It's only people who realize that they're in a desert. Even in their own homes, in their own communities. Who realize we are in the wilderness. In the desert, dry, thirsty for the truth. And have expressed the desire to repent. We can hear John saying, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And hear that as an invitation. He'll do it. Is it, is it dropping? I baptize you with water. He will. He wills to. It is his desire to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And with fire. Other gospel writers remember. He will do it. Do you want it? Do you want it? If you do, it will mean taking action, just as it meant for them to get up from their homes and to walk. It will require action, just like you came out into the desert. It will mean believing all he says and doing what he commands. So this invitation, it's recorded for us and recorded for all time, not just as a record of what happened. It's recorded as an ongoing invitation, a living call. 
It's what prophecy does. When a prophet spoke the words of God, those words become everlasting. They're the everlasting words of God. And so they remain alive. And if you find that you want the Holy Spirit to renew your life, it will mean taking action to follow Jesus. It's not just going to happen to you. No one can follow him for you. No one can follow him for you. No one can seek Jesus on your behalf. Your spouse, your parent, your friend cannot seek the Lord for you. You don't become a disciple. You don't grow in Christ by continuing to pursue the world and the benefits of the world. On Wednesday, that was Ash Wednesday, some of you said you desire the way of the cross. That's what we were doing. We said it with ashes. And if you weren't able to join uh, that community commitment, it was a community commitment. So you're still part of us in that. So we, we said it on behalf of all, our desire to repent. But you'll have to seek him yourself. No one here can seek him for you. And our corporate seeking him requires your seeking if the good of it will come to you. So maybe today... Uh, we can hear John's words. Maybe we can hear them. As he said them, I have baptized you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus will wash your soul. He will bring cleansing and correction. He will bring reordering. He will cleanse your heart and he will heal the wounds in your soul. And how? How will he do it? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He takes what we cannot deal with. He takes what we simply cannot reorder. He takes it in order to give us a life in freedom. So there at the river, there at the announcement of his identity and the invitation to join him, his work at the cross is part of it. His work at the cross is part of the invitation to follow. It's already tied into the benefits that he gives. And so we can see there's no joy without suffering. There's no freedom without some suffering. We have to remember as well that we can't enjoy life in Him. We can't enjoy the full benefits of being with and in Him and celebrating His the heavenly goods unless we die with Him. There's always a death. We too must die. We must die to sin. We must die to our selfishness. 
a consuming desire to see ourselves exalted. We must set that throne that we desire to sit in. We have to cast it down. We have to die to our insistence on being right and surrender judgment to the king. There's only one king. The king who dies. The king who dies for us. There's only one king. And in each of our hearts, there's only one throne. And so to die to self is the way that we enter the way of the cross. It's the way we walk the way of the cross. And as we lay ourselves before him, there is an exchange because a substitution's been made. And the exchange is grace. As we lay ourselves before the king and we set down our throne that he might set his up, grace, he fills us with grace to come and know him. Come and know him. Come and find the life that he has designed for you. The life that he gives to you. He will do it. That's the invitation. He will do it. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Wash, cleanse. Wash and cleanse. And heal. Father, we, we want to hear your true words. We want to hear your invitation. Uh, and I know that across this room, there are people who draw back. There are people who are feeling hesitant. That are feeling hesitant. And I pray that they, your spirit would be at work now, that they would know the invitation to come and follow you is for them. To come and be healed is for them. There's no exclusions. Lord, let your spirit uh, encourage you now. In the name of Jesus, we pray.